One of our mantras that I've always kept saying to everyone who's helped me on this is, if it doesn't work for teachers, it doesn't work. And we just kept saying, if it doesn't work for teachers, it doesn't work. Rather than correcting the teacher, oh, no, you've just got to do it this way. Like, if it doesn't work, the teacher doesn't work. And that's really been a really guiding principle. And I think it's, it's got us to something that is elegantly simple. This is High Tech High Unboxed. I'm Alec Patton. And that voice was Simon Breakspear. I first met Simon in London a decade ago. At the time, I was working at a nonprofit called the Innovation Unit, and he was researching international education policy at Cambridge University. Since then, he's moved back to his hometown, Sydney, Australia, and started two programs. Agile School Leadership, which is a 12-week program for school leadership teams who want to get better at improving their schools, and Teaching Sprints, which, to quote their website, support overloaded educators to continuously enhance their expertise. This episode is all about Teaching Sprints. I wanted to talk to Simon about them because of my interest in continuous improvement. See, much like Australian and American plants and animals evolved along parallel but distinct lines, teaching sprints and continuous improvement have a lot in common, but with some interesting distinctions. Now, before we get started, I need to give you a content advisory. There's no swearing in this episode, but Simon mentions the names of a bunch of education researchers and reformers from around the world, and mostly he doesn't explain who they are. You don't need to know who any of them are in order to follow the episode, but if you want to learn more about them, you can find information about all of them in the show notes. Okay, to understand where teaching sprints come from, we need to go back to Simon's first job, straight out of university. I started teaching uh, in 2008, and I was a high school science teacher. In Sydney? Yeah, in Sydney, Australia. So I only uh, taught full-time for about three and a half years, and... Then I got the opportunity to begin my master's in the UK. So I took off and started um, studies in comparative and international education, and then went in and did my doctorate after that with a focus on the OECD's PISA benchmarking. And so I was just trying to get my head around what good system change might look like and what were the characteristics of, at that point, what we might have called you know, highly effective education systems. So what happened in that half year? The UK uh, university calendar. So when I was starting up at Oxford, that was in October. So I had to say goodbye to my year 12 cohort at that point. And there was still another teaching term left in Australia, but I had to head Northern Hemisphere for the start of their university term. Got it. So what is the, what's the Australian school year? We go um, late January, basically the 1st of Feb, all the way through to about mid-December. Right. Of course you do. Yeah, we're strange down here. Southern Hemisphere. It's how we roll. <laughs> this is not going to be a basics <laughs> of the Australian school year podcast. But actually, one thing I'm I'm interested in is like the typical trajectory of the like ambitious young teacher who wants to have an influence on systems is school leadership that kind of direction. And you didn't do that. Well, that was the plan. That was my kind of theory of action, lead a series of schools over a career and, you know, hopefully influence multiple thousands of students over that time. And then I started to realize, well, just like school leadership was so important for the functioning of teachers, you know, you need that enabling culture and leadership. Well, so too, system leadership was so critical to schools. And I think at the original part, I was idealistically optimistic about this idea that, hey, what we could do is get the system levers or the system policy right, and then we'd create this enabling system and sort of get uplift at scale. And that was 
really exciting to me, you know, the thought that we may not be just working one school at a time or just a small cluster of schools at a time. Let's say in my home uh, state of New South Wales here in Australia, we have 2,200 schools. And so you, you can't solve that problem by leading one school at a time. And uh, I think that led me to start to, to think about what type of system solutions there might be. I feel like this, I don't, um, it may just be because I was starting the innovation unit at a similar time, but it really feels mm-hmm. like there was something in the water in the UK and maybe elsewhere as well at that time about this very optimistic idea about creating the levers and the structures in a sort of a non-autocratic way to enable system transformation. Does that does that ring true that that was like... Oh, uh, yeah. I was drinking that up. You know, I was in the UK at that time, particularly, say, 2008. 10 onwards, you know, our mutual friends, people like Valerie Hannon, Tony McKay, they were leading the work. Michael Fullen out of Canada had had some success in Ontario, maybe not like an innovation transformation, but they had data around improvements in graduation rates, around equity. You know, there was this sense of these stories of sort of maybe we could get serious uplift. Even Michael Fullen at the time wrote a paper called um, Whole System Reform Comes of Age. That was when I was, you know, at Oxford and then Cambridge and kind of lapping all this stuff up and really thinking about maybe it was possible for these systems to go on these type of improvement journeys and then potentially even uh, improvement transformations. And I think that discourse really changed way back into kind of a, an improvement discourse from about 2015 through to through to COVID, actually. And then now people, given this external shocker, I'm sensing this language again around whole system transformation, but this time driven by an external shock rather than at that time, it was a sense of maybe there could be an internal catalyst for this type of work. So you, you had this, you were in the UK and you were living in the UK, yeah, yeah. They let you live there too. Yeah. I wasn't just flying back and forth across the world from <laughs> Sydney to London just to catch a lecture and then heading home. <laughs> yeah. So I lived in Oxford for a year and I lived in Cambridge for four years. And um, during that time, I was the worst student going around. Um, I almost never turned up. I was just using the PhD as the most flexible day job I could find to pursue these interests, like trying to work out, like, can you get can you get a grip on large-scale reform? And so I spent some time at the OECD, um, a couple of months in Paris there, ended up doing my doctorate on PISA and trying to understand what people like Andreas Schleiser and his team at the OECD could really derive from, from that whole system data. This is the time when Shanghai you know, topped the PISA tables and people started to, started to think about educational rankings again. And can you just quickly explain the very shortest version of what the OECD and PISA is? So the OECD is an international organization, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. It was originally set up to um, distribute funds from the Marshall Plan, but has become a think tank of rich nations. So all uh, you know, highly developed countries are a member. They pay a certain amount a year. And it does a lot of economic analysis, health analysis, uh, and they had a small education division that has slowly grown. And then uh, they were having this challenge about working out not just the inputs to education in the late 90s, but what were the outcomes. And so they came up with this idea of having an assessment, the Program for International Student Assessment, where they would have an assessment for 15-year-olds that would be comparative uh, across different countries. 
And so the first results came out in 2001, and that's when Finland did really well. And that's why we all talk about Finland. But no one really ever talked about Finland in education up until that point. And it happens every three years, and we get another round of results. And I would say, you know, as someone that was also trying to um, understand uh, not just education in, in the OECD world, but also education uh, where the majority of young people are, uh, which is obviously in the global south, when you go into the development literature, there was also two camps at that time as well. And, you know, one of the camps was kind of the Jeffrey Sachs kind of camp, which was with the right investment in the right place, we can get this absolute rapid uplift in human development. And others who are saying, look, we want it, but it's, it's super complex. And I don't know whether there's any top-down large-scale solutions to this. And maybe it's actually about mobilizing a lot of local energy uh, and local solution finding, but, you know, there's not top-down solutions. And so, you know, I was starting to map in that even though we use different language, there's a lot of people trying to solve complex problems. And I sensed at the time there was both early on a real optimism around large-scale system change in all these areas. And then I think as that waned a little bit, people either went into a camp, which was kind of, ah, it doesn't work. Or they started to say, well, maybe there's a, there is a system play here, but it's not a system of solutions, but a sol- system of solution finding processes. And that's where I've landed at the moment, that my theory of action is you can get to large scale change, we might be able to, but the answer isn't to kind of find the answer somewhere else and then share that with everyone who hasn't yet got it, but actually to share solution finding processes such that people can, uh, yes, base their ideas on the best available ev- evidence, but go on an adaptive implementation journey to, how would I say, to try to work out how to make what works work in their context. And that's kind of at the moment where you've got me in this part of my life phase, that's, that's my current theory of action. So from teaching the classroom to thinking uh, I would try to lead a couple of you know, schools as, as maybe a school principal to then thinking, well, maybe it's you know, working at a, at a minister level or a chief state superintendent level to try to get those shifts to now thinking, well, you can still work at scale, but it's not about scaling up the solutions, but it's actually about empowering more people with solution finding processes. So what brought you back to Australia? Uh, well, only one thing, and my wife found out she was pregnant with our first child. I was actually moving to California. I was going to join a, an ed tech startup because I think at that point I was in the point where thinking, I don't think policy is the right lever here. So that's a shame. I've just spent a lot of time thinking about this. The last page of your thesis. <laughs> she's like well this is a waste i'm going to california (laughs) i don't know if it's a waste but man we need some intellectual humility around this so i got increasingly you know i think i was heading increasingly of the view that you still needed to work at scale the way of working at scale might increasingly be about empowering people with the right tools the right research so evidence bases that could start as the best bets for your work not the answer and then network so that you could be embedded with both other schools and other knowledgeable others particularly people like applied academics who could support you and push you and be thought partners to you in your journey and so yeah, I was I was moving out to California. I actually did for a month. My wife was still finishing up her teaching job in Cambridge and, and moving across. And then we were about to move. And she's like, I think we might not be going to California. 
and yeah, we found out we're having our little boy who's now six. So, uh, and they've had two since. So we came home basically because we said, look, if we're going to do family, let's be back close to where we're both from and our families are from. We sort of made a decision purely on family reasons. And then I started thinking, oh, well, what am I going to do now? Am I going to go work for a department of education? Am I going to go back into a school? Basically, I'm doing what I'm doing now because uh, I got home in January and nothing was open because it was summer holidays. And so I thought, oh, I better I better start just doing some consulting work to fill in the gap until I can find a job. And I've just kept going, Alec. Uh, <laughs> so I never planned to kind of set up my own organization and do this type of work at this phase of my career. But it's been incredible to be able to try to follow this thought of you know, how do we develop simple to use tools? How do we make evidence available to the people who need it on the front line? And how do we connect them with other colleagues and other knowledgeable others to accelerate their work? And look, it's it's not the full solution, but I'm pretty sure it can have an impact. And it also generates a lot of other insights uh, that help me inform uh, some government work that I do about at least what not to do if you want to accelerate school improvement. So, so I can I can see the recognition of the limits of big picture policy work um, and work at scale in education, but the piece that I'm missing is what led you to the concept of learning sprints as the area of focus. Sure. So we call them teaching sprints now. So uh, should, yeah, we should use that. We changed the name about a year and a half ago. Yeah. So to, to connect the dots uh, in what we're doing. So I, I was back, I was starting to work with some smaller clusters of schools here, but one reoccurring problem over and over again, people are saying, look, we keep talking about what's our mechanism for practice change or practice improvement. But to be honest, you know, people are saying that our professional kind of collaboration time is the is the slowest one hour in the fortnight. And I wasn't aware how bad it was on the inside and how many people were going around with this rhetoric of, oh, we do this collaborative approach and it's so powerful and we do this. It's like when you actually were in schools, teachers are saying, this doesn't work. I don't like it. It's not well run. We don't know where we're up to. We're not sure what we need to do next. And so I saw these challenges and basically, look, I was never going to build a teacher professional learning approach. Like I thought that solution was, you know, that solution set was already available. And it purely came out of supporting some schools who said, well, no, once we've worked out what we want to improve and we've worked out what kind of evidence base could inform that practice, what are we going to do to get the practice change in the classroom? And so I just saw it as a little project about you know, four years ago or so. I was working, um, I should say, when I was back in Australia, I was actually going back and forth to Western Canada about four or five times a year. I had some good relationships in Alberta and BC um, and Ontario. And I was working with the Alberta Teachers Association and they set up this network community. I was inspired by some of Tony Bright's work around network improvement communities. This is back in 2016, some papers I'd read and so let's set up one of these in and around teacher professional learning. And that was really the starting point of the, the model. Uh, I had a friend in uh, San Francisco who is in an ed tech company, Nelson Gonzalez, and he'd sort of been pushing me around shorter cycles of work and kind of is <laughs> the best call out. I showed him one of my early models and he said, oh, Simon, this feels like it will never end. And I was like, uh, thanks, <laughs> mate. 
because <laughs> uh, all of improvement cycles in bloody education were always some circle or some spiral that literally never ended. And I said, yeah, that's the point, continuous improvement. He's like, that's not how we do things like in the Valley. Like we ship stuff, like we get stuff out and done and it's satisfying. And so uh, all credit to him and that coffee we had because he kind of pushed me to, to think about the model. And that's when I said, well, maybe I should pick up some of the stuff that I've looked at from a technology perspective and incorporate it. So teaching sprints, Alec, is the love child of agile sprints, deliberate practice from uh, psychology and sort of action research or research informed teaching practice. And I was kind of drawing on those areas to try to find a simple approach that would be doable for normal teachers, not just like the volunteer types, but like busy people like with like you and me with young kids at home and stuff going on. Like what would be a process that would actually be doable, would be evidence informed and would allow people to make incremental progress that would add up over time. That's what I was trying to solve for teaching sprints and made a lot of mistakes over the years trying to try to make it work. And increasingly now we're hearing from our partners in the field and our co-design teachers are saying, yeah, this this works for us. This it's it's a good solution. So it's interesting you in your sort of list of the the multiple parents that it was a love child of, you didn't include continuous improvement or improvement science. Did you kind of invent something much like continuous improvement on your own in parallel? Well, some of the early work of Tony Bright, I think even when he was still coming across from Chicago, I kind of picked up around the concepts of networked improvement communities, but I hadn't had any exposure at all to the idea of improvement science at the time. It was kind of before he'd released the first book, Learning to Improve, and I remember picking that up and going, oh, this is kind of coming from a similar you know, philosophical space here. When you start with an understanding that schools and school systems are complex adaptive systems, that improvement is rarely linear, it's often you know got elements that are unpredictable, there's a lot of human agency in it. So as soon as you kind of see schools and see school systems as complex adaptive systems, it pushes you into a camp of solutions that probably include everything from IDEO design thinking and human-centered design, uh, approaches of agile development, uh, lean startup has deep resonance in this space, design implementation research, uh, and then, of course, elements of improvement science, and then implementation science, which is different. You know, implementation science is coming a little bit more strongly from a behavioral science perspective of once you think you've got a solution, how do you get better uptake of that solution? So all of those kind of approaches to solving this similar problem, which is how do you get progress occurring in complex places? You know, I, I think I've I've engaged with each of those in different times. But, you know, teaching sprints first emerged, you know, four or five years ago in, in that work. And so, yeah, it was, it was actually, we were doing this work as in the US, we could see, you know, some of that improvement science work starting to take off and, and spread. And so, yeah, on the other side of the Pacific, um, there's been some other people trying out some different ideas and landing in uh, a very similar space. Well, that's really interesting. So... Let's imagine like I'm in the classroom. How would I, if I was going to be doing a learning sprint, first of all, how would I know a teaching sprint? Yeah. Well, you want to know why we ended up changing. So I called it a learning sprint because it was about the teacher learning that could influence the student learning, right? 
Right, yeah. And actually, one of the iterations of the name before that was an improvement sprint. And then we're like, eh, sounds too negative. Teachers were telling us something needs to be fixed. I was like, okay. So, call this learning sprint. But then what was happening is people were using it as a short cycle to superficially bump up student data. And so, they'd say, oh, a learning sprint. Where's a kid? I need to bump up their data. Oh, a four-week sprint to bump it up. And... I was getting really worried about people misunderstanding that this was mostly about the teacher learning. And so we actually, again, it would be absolutely from our design work with teachers. Uh, we sort of say, well, you know, what would make it clearer? And, was, and we tested this idea of what would if we just called it a teaching sprint and teachers got it first time. They go, oh, it's about my practice improvement. Got it. And so it was painful, but we changed the name. All right, so so I'm so I'm a teacher. I've I've called it a learning sprint. You've gently corrected me that it's a teaching sprint. <laughs> but how do I? So so first, so so you're saying sort of people are like picking it up. But if I'm if I'm getting the authentic Simon Breakspear experience, Oof, yeah, has my school kind of contracted with you? Has my district? How do I kind of come in come in contact with you? Oh, okay. Well, I mean, we we built it as kind of just an open source process. So it is just a process. Uh, it's designed to be a very simple process, just three steps. You prepare a sprint, you run a sprint, and you review a sprint. And that's by design because people need simple things that they can remember. They don't have to refer back to the model. It, you know, it, it, That's really, really crucial. So a lot of the time I might do, a, or a member of my team might do a quick kickoff uh, keynote or so to introduce them to the main ideas, which is about... Uh, teaching sprints are first and foremost about getting better, that all of us typically reach a premature plateau in our expertise where we sort of land somewhere good enough. And sprints is an approach to help all of us consider making small incremental changes in our practice that can add up over time. We talk them through our, our three big ideas, which are about start with the best bets when you don't have enough time, when you're flat out why would we focus our practice improvement on anything other than what the evidence has suggested, uh, best bets for improving student learning, that if we're going to improve, we've got to actually engage in practice, a real focus on practicing. And then our third kind of design principle underlying it all is focusing on tiny shifts. And this has been cool, actually, because in the last couple of years, I know that you've come across books like James Clear's kind of New York Times bestseller, Atomic Habits, which is all about small incremental shifts, or BJ Fogg from Stanford's work on tiny habits. And so it's interesting. A lot of teachers have kind of overlapped with some of that thinking about small change adding up to massive incremental progress over time. And that's always been one of our fundamental design principles for, for how we set it up. So we, we kind of help them just understand this just about improvement, about improvement off the evidence and trying things out in the classroom and seeing what works. Um, but then, look, we've got on the website the processes there. There's a set of videos that explain the process for the prepare meeting when people are getting together to decide on their practice improvement area. We've got open source research that we've pulled from different places uh, and a list there that people can choose from. And they could say, hey, we wanted to do some work on, say, retrieval practice and space review. Or we wanted to do some work on formative assessment. Cool, there's some different research bundles here that have been written for uh, educator audiences and we don't write those we just uh, there's plenty of good people doing that translation work uh, and then we also have some protocols online just simple ways of running that conversation to to help you come to a decision about what you want to work on 
So wherever possible, we have it all open and a lot of people can just get moving with it without ever engaging with any of our team. The majority of people would get moving on it without engaging any of our team. And then we've got a, a more detailed online course of just you know things that we used to do live in workshops. Now we're basically trying to move entirely digital. So there are there are schools that are just kind of going, oh, I heard about this thing that sounds cool and just, just doing it for themselves. Oh, yeah, everywhere. And the, the problem with that, Alec, is, you know, sometimes people don't do the whole, all of the 21 minutes it would have taken you to watch like five videos and they just jump on in. And because they have some sort of pre-existing mental model about what this thing is, um, sometimes they head on and implement in a way that's not really aligned with what we've built it to do. But that's part of the cost of kind of, or part of the, the I guess, expectations of what happens when you make something available and open source and you're trying to allow people to find it and have a go. And so, you know, we've got a book coming out uh, December or January this year with Corwin. Uh, that'll be an important piece for us, I think, to try to have more people uh, hear it from the horse's mouth, if you like, from our team about the process and how it's been built. And we're hoping the combination of having that book uh, and then having some more detailed running teaching sprints videos that we can get to scale with a higher degree of, of fidelity to the model. Yeah. And I mean, it's not like if, if you wrote a book about yoga, some people would do downward dog really badly. You know, that's sort <laughs> of, that's, that's, that, that's kind of baked into the, the nature of you making something available to people. Like, I feel like, I don't think, I don't think that's like any worse for what you're doing than, than anything else in the kind of nature of sharing yeah, I think all you can do is make the model as simple as possible because obviously complex things don't scale well. So that's why I've got it right down to the core, you know, three core phases, tools for each stage, super simple to get your head around. So, you know, it's it's probably only 20% of my, my life and work, you know, to be honest, Alec, it's not, it's been a bit of an accidental thing that I was just trying to solve a little problem along the way with school leaders and it sort of has emerged as something that has has really resonated in the field. Um, but, you know, we've just got a small little team of people who work on this kind of part-time in the edges. And um, hopefully over the next year, we'll have even more resources available to schools who want to make it work. So what's the first thing I do as a teacher? Uh, we'd encourage you to go uh, as a teacher to go through the um, Introduction to Teaching Sprints course, which is literally 22 minutes of you know, five little videos that would give you an overview of kind of what it is and what it's for and what are the three phases. And then basically um, you'd head along to whatever the collaboration time you've already got, if you are going to be doing it in teams and that leader should walk you through your first prototype sprint, which would probably be uh, if the school already has an area that they've decided to work on, say something like formative assessment, then maybe that's already decided and there's a couple of uh, reference resources that have been printed out or digitally available. And we spend the first 20 minutes maybe doing a research jigsaw where we just have a look at a page each and draw out some of the key implications. Move from that to consider where are their points of challenge or points of resonance with our current practice. And then we explore together, well, is there something out of what we've been exploring here that uh, we might want to actually take into some deliberate practice and some trying out in the classroom? And uh, we have a simple protocol called Boulder Pebble Sand, where we're just sort of saying, look, you can't take on something that's too big 
you know, that's a boulder level practice change. So how do we break it down into something that's small and manageable technique uh, and think about where you might want to practice that. As a high school teacher, for example, I wouldn't want to practice that in all my classes. You know, we're trying to minimize. So we're trying to make it more manageable. Um, and so I might say, hey, I'm just going to do it with my year 10s, my year 10s biology, and I'm going to try uh, this formative assessment technique over the next two to three weeks. And once a teacher's found an effective formative assessment technique, Simon wants to make sure it becomes habitual. The goal of every teaching sprint is the enhancement of expertise. You know, adaptive expertise means teachers are not just doing what they're told, but are making the right instructional decision at the right time to move their learners forward. And I say that because like, if you, if you long for expertise in the classroom, then there's a growth rate for that. And I don't think you're going to get the growth rate much quicker than, you know, what I'm describing. Uh, if you want just kind of improvement theater, which is what I call when I see people, oh, what, you want me to do a what? I'll do a learning intention. All right, learning intentions on the board or success criteria, and then just carry on with the rest. This is what interests me most about teaching sprints. Although they begin with what Simon calls solution-finding processes, they don't stop with a solution. They keep going until the solution turns into expertise. To put it in cinematic terms, a teacher starts their teaching sprint like the NASA mathematician Katherine Johnson in Hidden Figures, drawing on existing research in order to find a solution to the problem of getting a space capsule safely back to Earth. The problem is when the capsule moves from an elliptical orbit to a parabolic orbit. There's no mathematical formula for that. Maybe we've been thinking about this all wrong. Maybe it's not new math at all. It could be old math. Something that looks at the problem numerically and not theoretically. Math is so that's how the teacher begins. But after a few years of teaching sprints, the teacher hasn't just solved their problem. They've developed adaptive expertise. So now they're like Uma Thurman in Kill Bill, a martial arts expert who, when someone unexpectedly throws a baseball at her head from six feet away, slices it in half. And this is important, because teaching requires excellent reflexes. Day to day, it's a lot more like getting baseballs thrown at you than it is like sitting down to solve a math problem. So, if you want to help teachers develop expertise that they actually use when they're making split-second decisions in the classroom, you need to reconsider where professional learning takes place. When I talk to teachers, I often say, um, hey, when, when you hear the concept of professional learning, what mental images come to mind? And they say things like sitting in halls with like researchy people like you with PowerPoints. Yeah, what else? You know, oh, you know, being <laughs> together as a group with some with some data wall up. OK, what else? You know, uh, maybe a reading group or a PLC discussion. OK, what else? And I said, do you ever think when you think professional learning or teacher learning, you in your classroom with your kids trying something out? And like, oh. Not really. And so we're trying to bring the idea of practicing. I'm not trying to improve all of my craft this week because you can't practice everything at once. So I isolate a piece. I try to get it a little bit better. And then I try to integrate it back into my broader repertoire, whether you're on the basketball court or on the football field and whatever. Um, that's the way humans get better at things. Um, and that's true also, by the way, if you want to be a surgeon or you want to be a professional musician. And so we're just trying to bring this idea of practicing within the context of your classroom as a core part of professional learning to the fore. Yeah. You know, when you watch a basketball team playing, they don't all stop and look around and, you know, figure out where everybody is before they pass the ball, as I would have to if I were on the court, you know, their sense of where everybody is and what's happening and what they might be doing and how they're all going to respond. It's, I mean, it's astonishing. And you don't just get that. That takes 
a lot of time. Well, that's a good call out, Alec, because what adaptive experts are able to do, as you just said, is that they're able to perceive things differently. When an expert, you know, basketball player or football player sees something, they are able to perceive everything in gestalt, in whole. They're able to take in that information like rapidly and holistically, boom. Or a chess champion, they're able to just glance at a board and then you can ask them where are the pieces and they know where all the pieces are. But you wouldn't see the board of pieces. You would just see the one king or the one pawn. Um, you know, if you were uh, uh, on a basketball court, you'd just see one player or you're probably just looking where the ball is. And so experts, they build up these mental maps whereby they're able to rapidly perceive what's happening, adjust action in real time. And increasingly, I think that's the discourse we need to have about our expert teachers. You know, you watch an expert teacher come into a classroom they've never taught in and they perceive it in gestalt. They can go, boom, I know exactly what's going on here. They can look at a kid's one writing sample and their brain's already kind of making quick judgments about where this kid might be up to and what they might need next. Um, They've got this repertoire of potential lesson structures and tasks and they're using it flexibly, even if they had to do a cover class for a colleague, they can come in and, and pull off a pretty good lesson. And, you know, I, I think this idea of esteeming not just teacher commitment to students and not just their experience, but also this notion of expertise is, is crucial to elevating the profession. And it isn't just about developing new skills. If you're a teacher, take a moment to think of how many techniques you've learned, refined, and then just stopped doing. It's amazing how many times people said, oh, I kind of used to do that, uh, but I kind of dropped it off. Yeah, if I could have had a month where I did all of the best practices that I ever picked up and forgot during the course of my career and none of the worst ones. You'd be a killer teacher, exactly, right? Yeah, and that's true of everybody. Everybody has at some point done everything they need to do. They just... Yeah, so, I mean, this is... Don't have it all sorted, but our basic theory of practice improvement change is thinking about massive incremental improvement. And it's about saying we often ask ourselves and teachers to change too much over too small a period of time. So what happens if we could just think a little bit more medium term and say, well, look, what kind of teacher do you want to be in three years? It's like, well, it's like, okay. So imagine in three years, you've got 12 terms. And in each one of those terms, we work on just one core sprint which involves both the knowledge building, because sometimes you did some stuff, but you didn't really have the underlying theory and understanding about why that is powerful for learning. So you do a bit of knowledge building. You'd spend two to four weeks in the actual deliberate practicing within the within the classroom. And that's actually about giving yourself the freedom just to say, look, I'm doing the best I can and everywhere else, but I'm literally trying to embed this practice right now. I'm trying to find a way for it to be sustainable, to be incorporated into my typical repertoire. So you come out of autopilot, you're trying to work on it, but then you want to work on it to the point you're getting some fluency. Like it's easier to keep doing it than not. You review it, you kind of update some of your own mental models and thinking about it. And so you think, oh, it's too small, Simon. Like we've got to transform learning now. It's like, I'm with you. But, you know, we had teachers work through a process like that and they did a small incremental high leverage shift once a term and they did it in such a way that they did habit change. Then in three years from now, you'd be, incredibly better at 12 things and of those 12 things you know if you're able to sustain eight of them or so Alec you could have a serious step change in your capacity to cause learning and I actually think that's probably closer to the rate of change that we can expect in 
teacher capacity building. And I think we dramatically overestimate how much change can be done in any one term. And we absolutely underestimate the radical shifts that could occur if we thought about two or three year horizons and systematically changing and sustaining one thing a term. So, you know, these are the kind of things that I've been exploring and I don't have all the solutions. And look, I'm the first one to say, oh, but wait a second. If that's the pace of change, Simon, you know, how are we going to live out our moral imperative to change the learning lives of students? Because if it takes three years to get this shift, some of the kids have already left the school. And, you know, I, I understand that logic. But then I just have to look at the absolute failure of the way that we've done professional learning up until now and say, well, I agree with the moral imperative to make a shift soon, but what we're doing ain't working. So what would it look like to give ourselves this time horizon that's a little bit more realistic in the short term, but maybe we get that compounding effect? Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. And I think the point of the moral imperative, it's a, it's a very understandable idea that I think tends to do a lot more harm than good about the, well, we have to have it now or we let it, we're letting these kids down. It's sort of like, you know, reforestation is one of the really powerful things we can do to mitigate climate change. And, you know, trees take a long time to grow, but the sort of argument of like, well, we need to mitigate climate change right now. It's like, well, the tree's Mm going to take the time it takes the tree to grow. Yeah, good call. And it's the same thing. If it's like, if this is how long it takes to embed a practice like this, it just is. Yeah, that's exactly. That is the limiting factor that, you know, I love this metaphor of growth of a tree because what does it take to grow expertise? And this brings us to what I think is the most radical part of Simon's vision, one that flies in the face of almost every other education reformer you ever heard of. Here it is. As far as Simon's concerned, if teaching sprints require teachers to do more work than they're doing already, they aren't fit for purpose. I want people just to turn up and do their job. And when they do that, the organization has been set up that they get this opportunity to incrementally improve something that matters every term. And so if they spend two, three, five, 10, 30 years in your school district, that because they're there, they will be a dramatically more effective educator. Some evidence, at least, suggests that after about five to six years, teachers, um, their rate of improvement in expertise or their ability to cause impact in the classroom begins to flatline. Uh, And basically, I I put this at the feet, not so much of the educators themselves, but that we haven't developed organisations that have taken the adult learning as seriously as the student learning. For Simon, taking the adult learning in school seriously has meant a lot of false starts and a lot of missteps. I would say to anyone out there kind of thinking about trying to design a process or a tool that helps on the ground, like just get ready to get it so wrong so many times. Anything from the first model was like five steps. It was called something different. And you've just got to keep being willing of like, what's the problem we're trying to solve? What's really working? What's not working? And are we willing to like do anything from like, oh, we've got to change the domain name of this one to, all right, we've got to scrap all of those printed versions of the process because we're being told no one's doing that bit of it or they don't understand that. And so there is this real thing that if you're going to be outside of schools, like at the moment I am, then when educators say something 
uh, we've got to take it seriously. And, you know, I close one of our mantras that I've always kept saying to everyone who's helped me on this is like, if it doesn't work for teachers, it doesn't work. And we just keep saying, if it doesn't work for teachers, it doesn't work rather than correcting the teacher. Oh no, you've just got to do it this way. Like if it doesn't work, the teacher doesn't work. And that's really been a really guiding principle. And I think it's, it's got us to something that is elegantly simple. And I hope that's one of the reasons why this thing is scaling so fast. Without an organization, it's just up on a website and I put a little bit of time into it every now and again because we have a solution that I think is usable for teachers, but it's inherently adaptable as well. And so that whether you're a small little rural school with two of you there or a huge like large high school in Hong Kong, like places where you and I got to work once, that people can see this and then they do the adaptation in their context to make it make it work there. And you got a book coming out. Well, yeah, we've just done a, my uh, dear friend and co-author, uh, Bron Ryrie Jones, she's a, you know, I was a high school teacher. She was a, a primary music school, music teacher. She teaches teachers at Melbourne University. And so uh, COVID was good for us because we had a little bit of a push of like, okay, uh, we're not traveling and in schools every day. And we sat out and finally wrote this thing up. So we've got a yeah, teaching sprints uh, book coming out with Corwin uh, in December uh, or January uh, in the States and, and Australia. And we just called it how overloaded educators can keep getting better. And that's what we're trying to support here with, with this process. You uh, are more open and direct about how brutally difficult teaching is than almost any other consultant I know. It's one, of the, it's, it's one of the things I've always admired most about you. Yeah, well, I mean, you can't spend time with teachers. One good thing, marrying a teacher helps. You did the same. They keep you they keep you honest and grounded. But also there's this, you know, the expertise literature has helped me here, Alec, because I always deeply respected the emotional exhaustion of being embedded in people's lives and community in the way that teachers do. But now I'm I am seriously convinced that the expertise that educators have, their ability to make real-time decisions about where learners are and what they might need next and adjust is some of the most extraordinary expertise in the planet. Like, it really is. And I think the more that you start to get a head around uh, what they are doing and then in a context that's constantly moving, and an embedded community context as well. It's, it's, it's absolutely extraordinary work. And so for those of us who aren't doing that work, I think we need to keep honoring that. And then we have to help them by creating processes that are simple enough to be taken up in that complex environment. Yeah, They don't need to be simple because educators can't get their head around them. Of course they can get their head around them. No, they, they need to be workable and doable uh, where you take the conditions of their work as prerequisites to your design rather than coming in with something you're pitching them on and saying oh couldn't you just do this then it would work it's like no back to the drawing board for us on the outside of schools uh until we can get something right yeah i remember in my first year i was just like i had this moment where i was like this is like being in a room full of rubik's cubes and every time you make an adjustment to one all the ones out of your eyesight are readjusting themselves. Oh, I love that. I love that. That is good. That is, yeah, the complex adaptive systems, right? Yeah. And then also I remember I realized, oh, not not only is this job really hard, but the mere fact that this group of students is excited has made this other group of students less excited in response. (laughs) Yeah. And yet teachers on a Friday afternoon at two o'clock in that condition 
find a way to catalyze learning, right? And yeah, and that's extraordinary, you know. And that's one of the things. There's the relational side of things, and then there's this whole thing of like catalyzing learning and catalyzing human development, and it's extraordinary. And I think one of the reasons why I want to keep getting yes into the practice of this, but also the research side of understanding what it is that expert teachers do and how do they come to develop the capacity to do that. I think we, we need that as a way of being able to articulate to those outside of education, how extraordinary it is that, that as much learning as does happen already does happen. And, um, that teachers are able to actually do that kind of work. High Tech High Unboxed is written and edited by me, Alec Patton. Our theme music is by Brother Herschel. You can find the Teaching Sprints videos, online classes, research bundles, and protocols at teachingsprints.com. Really, there's just so much good stuff on that website for free. Check it out. And if you want to know more about anybody we talked about in this episode, including Simon Breakspear himself, check out the show notes. Thanks for listening.